This is the Garden School Podcast. tidings welcome back to another episode of the garden school podcast i'm your host jd and we're gonna have my good friend miles back for another conversation today we'll be talking about learning how to paint or the philosophy of doing things you're not particularly good at remember if you guys like the the podcast and you want to become a member join us on our patreon page at the garden school hello how you doing good man I love the little picture of you and your wife that flashes on the screen beforehand. It's a little preparation. Very sweet, right? A postcard, yeah. You send that out to friends and family? Uh, not yet. I'm trying to go for one of those, uh, like, 90s-themed pictures where the whole family's wearing, like, denim. And then I'm going to send right. those out. Right. You know what I'm talking about? I want something a little more, uh, I need a little more unity. Our colors are clashing. Uh, I hear you. <laughs> Sorry for the delay, man. What's that? I said sorry for the delay. I know I keep going up and down with the times. Oh, it's all good, man. I, I had a day that was, I was kind of a, a prosaic, busy day, you know, just a bunch of stuff, kind of uneventful, but stuff I had to handle to do, you know? Me too. A lot of chore-like stuff. Me too. I had to turn my truck, that truck back in. I was driving. I got my car back finally. Uh... That's good. I I almost I got a I got in a, a small accident, but now not with anybody else. Luckily, today I was just running. My head was all over the place. I stepped out of the car without putting it in park. I was just I was you know I was just <laughs> not in not in my mind. The, <laughs> what happened? And, and, and just, then I misplaced my wallet later, and I came back to look for it, and I realized that my front license had fallen off. So I so I so I you know scooped that up really quick. You know, that was the kind of day in a nutshell, just kind of a mess of a day. <laughs> Luckily, I kind of gathered up the pieces, so I, it could have gone badly, but it's uh, it was okay. As long as you're all right. Yep. All right, I'm gonna um I'm gonna pull up your notes now, so I have them like. See, so, yeah, I only got through half of this book, but because I didn't have as much time as I wanted to, but I thought we could kind of go into more some personal kind of uh, dimensions. Yeah, yeah, whatever. As long as we're mean and we're and we're doing it right. Yep. Let me um. We're already. The cool thing is, I'm already recording, so we can just seamlessly go into it whenever we want. I, it's like the yeah, I like that. Yeah, man. I mean, Maddie, you've been listening to them before I even get them up. I don't know how he managed to listen to. I guess I accidentally published one before it was done. And so he, like, I woke up this morning with like a six bullet point notes from him. What, what's the, what's what's up, Matty G? <laughs> yeah, we should probably shout him out, Matt. We love you. Maybe we should talk about him. We'll have a next next. We should next have set. yeah. We should have a yeah. The the um. The works of Matty G. The works of Matt. The ethics of two times. Right, right, right. Yeah, 
Um, no, man. He just, he's a big fan. He's glad to hear you. He's glad to hear you. He's glad I heard to hear he us. Goes from, he goes from country to country and lays his hand upon your head. Right? He, he's he a holy blessed. man. He's a holy man. He's a sexual guru. I think he might be. He's like that Bikram guy. With the one that fucks all the all the converts? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's Matt. Yeah, but for some reason, even though after you've been fucked, you thank him for it, right? It, no, no, no. He bills you, you pay it on time, and you thank him. Right. Yeah. Yeah, good for him. Yeah. Oh, so the, the cool thing is, is so... Um, if I'm not mistaken, today we're going to talk about uh, how to how to paint, right? And doing things you're well, not good at. This, yeah. Well, I just had this book, which is kind of a it's a it's a somewhat famous book in the in like um, by this woman, uh, uh, Marion Milner, or she also she had a pseudonym, Joanna Field. So she she was a kind of psychoanalyst, a British psychoanalyst. Um, I think she was probably maybe the object oriented kind of school, or uh, it's a school of Mel- Melanie Klein, so or object <laughs> relations. So, so names that would be interesting towards that are, are Melanie Klein and uh, D.W. Winnicott. Winnicott is really worth the read. He's like a very brilliant guy and really a moving read too. That that name sounds familiar. The other two don't. Uh, the, she's known for something called uh, Object What? I think it's yeah. It's called Object. It's Object Oriented uh, uh, Psychotherapy, which is um, a lot of it has to do with uh, uh, the relationship with the primary object which would be one's mother and about uh, recreating that through what would often, especially if, uh, what artists are usually interested in, uh, is returning to a sense of play or a sense of what I think um, uh, Winnicott called something like the holding environment um, in which you feel uh, a kind of presence, which would be associated with the mother and a freedom or, a, or an ability to kind of recreate a sense of play, especially through, through some kind of object. Um, Oh wow! So it's actually kind of act. It, it's not just a theory. It's actually kind of like a behavioral therapy. Yeah, yeah. Um, it definitely, it definitely had that dimension, and um, it was kind of a th- one, one, maybe the most most influential. It was kind of the British school and like the second wave, one of the second most influential waves of psychoanalysis after the kind of the first the Freudian kind of circle. Oh, so interesting. Because I was reading the notes that you sent me, and I actually. Um, I think some of the opening lines from Milner are actually similar to uh, some of the things that Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton was saying in that yeah. essay that I kept referring to uh, in the first episodes that we were doing called A Piece of Chalk. Well, it's very interesting. I'm sure they are because what I realized when I was reading it, um, it, it's, it has very little to do with painting as you would think about it. You know, it's really right. – it's really – what it reads like is like somebody who read a lot of romantic poetry, which is probably why I take to it. And so they're kind of they have all this. Uh, they have a lot of. Um, she's steeped in the romantic school of thought, and kind of get into how how that kind of comes across, especially with this notions of uh, what of separation and um, and uh, collapse or merger, which is something we talk about all the time, which is kind of just it's kind of a crucial idea that appears almost everywhere, but just the, the, the an idea of distance and closeness and what's kind of at stake um, in each. All right, fascinating. So, do you want to do you want to like kind of hop in and, and give give me like the title of the book and then and then start with a certain through just through a certain uh, area or how do you want to do it? Yeah, um, 
So, yeah, so this is the book. It's uh, Joanna Field on not being able to paint. On not being able to paint. All right, so she's using her, her pseudonym, Joanna Field. She uses her pseudonym. I think the book sold sometimes under the Marion Milner uh, uh, name, too. But, yeah, she, but, but it's also uh, – she also wrote a book called The Life of One's Own. Um, and the foreword is by Anna Freud, right? So Anna Freud was you know, obviously Freud's daughter who kind of um, um, extended extended the theory in, in a number of ways, right? Interesting. So, um, and so, you know, what it's – so um, the titles are, are really great. Like, so she has – so she kind of is doing these free drawings and um, and she's trying to figure out what she's after, so you know, so the first, so she separates it. The first part is the emergence of the free drawings. Then the part two is the content of the free drawings, the method, then the use. So you know, see so the chapter one that's the it's broken up into what the eye likes, uh, being separate together, outline in the solid earth, the plunge into color. So you can see there, like like a like a sense of plunge would be would be like that kind of apocalyptic merger or a sense of oneness with the thing that you are. Uh, depicting to to a certain degree um, the necessity of illusion. I think it's really uh, interesting that, that that concept of the primary the primary um, figure as artistic endeavor, but also being connected to the mother. Can you can you break that down? Yeah. Um, see, it, it's kind of. Um, that was, I think I think that was maybe one of the uh, crucial sort of um, interventions in some ways of, of, of psychoanalysis in general, right? Was to secularize um, something that was that that had been up to that point uh, kind of considered maybe more often in sort of religious terms, right? So the mother, you know, so you'll often you know uh, the figure hear about of the mother, right? What's that? You mean like the figure of the mother? The figure of the mother becomes primacy as a principle so i have a question for you this is i mean it's connected but that guy eric neumann that that wrote that book about consciousness where he discovers the concept of the great mother is that we could do it next time yeah is that before freud or after freud that's after freud and he is in some ways kind of uh um he's much closer to young but probably student of young right yeah. Okay. Then um, that makes sense that he, he was at. Yeah. I think it's part of the the, the Arano school. Well, the, the famous the famous thing is that Young said that he wished he wrote the book. But right. um, he says prefer, that in the forward, right? I prefer Newman to Young, but uh, to uh, myself. But oh, um, how come? But we can talk about that book next time. But it's it's you know because it's very influential. I know that you were reading a lot of Camille Paglia. She finds she it's very influential to what she does. She does, but um. Yeah, but you know he'll talk about like the great mother, these kind of mythic ideas, the great mother, the mother of triple aspect, which is something that you find in these different myth schools. Right. So I mean, does that tie of, any? Does that tie in any, in any way to Freud's right? Freud's concept of the, of the mother, and then this artistic concept of the mother too. Well, Freud's going to secularize it. Right. So, I'm, so it, yeah. So, in a sense, there is this back and forth motion, right? Where 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 uh, Freud is taking an immense amount of like anthropological research and um, romantic poetry in particular, and he's trying to prep make make it practical and secularize it. And then someone like Young will come and try to return it to uh, to 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 a less practical, more kind of mythic sort of structure. 
And then so, it, is Milner kind of in that same line in some way or no? Um, no, I, I think Mil- Milner's very British in the sense that she is um, she's mu- she's more interested in um, what we want and how we come to know um, that we might uh, uh, how how we confuse ourselves about what we really want about what we're really after. So again and again, she'll she'll describe a, a sort of a um, drawing exercise where she tries to depict something, one thing or another, and she discovers that there's much more there um, than um, she anticipated. But it's not systematic, like Eric Neumann or Freud are, are, are systematizers. She's much more like somebody, like an essayist, maybe more like a Chesterton, Somebody who's steeped in the in the culture of her time, which is um, she's coming off the nineteenth century, so she'll quote from Blake frequently. She's very she's steeped in a certain English tradition, a, a transcendental English tradition of um, of of writings and of poetry. So she's kind of very um, interested in in um, in concepts that that are less systematic. Okay. So. Um, like here's an example. It goes through all throughout. She's, um, in spite of having been taught long ago at school uh, the rules of perspective, I had recently found that uh, whenever a drawing showed more or less correct perspective, as in drawing a room, for instance, the results seemed not worth the effort. All depended upon what aspect of objects one was most concerned with. So this is going to be about. Uh, it's kind of very much what we kind of uh, learned maybe um, in uh, in like a Dr. Hake class is that you begin a project thinking you're doing one thing and that always again and again you discover you're doing something else so that there's you try to so you try to paint one thing and there's a contrary aspect that shows up or or you think that you're interested in one thing and maybe and something else emerges so does she, just the, does, um, she, does she talk about maybe why that happens or like does she theorize on why that is like why does it seem that the imagination why does it seem that the imagination has a certain sense of autonomy um yeah well i think um i think in a much she's she has a much less systematic way of getting getting it across what she's really going to do is she's going to go through these exercises. And I was kind of interested in doing something like this also, um, you know, spending a couple months kind of, uh, um, you know, uh, you know, doing something like free drawing like she did or or, or kind of uh, submitting to some kind of uh, learning some new thing and, try, and trying to figure out, you know, where that goes. So that's kind of why, where I was interested in this book in addition to talking about kind of attention in a certain way. So she, uh, so she approaches drawing or and painting with n- no background in it whatsoever. No background in it, and very, very soon she's talking about about sort of psychoanalytic things, like like I said, from a from a perspective of kind of uh, somebody who's read a lot of romantic poetry. Right. Yeah, I mean, so it, it's like something she said, like uh, if, uh, as soon as I did begin to think about it, she's talking about, you know, uh, perspective, the kind of, of, sh- of shade and light, the kind of basics of, of drawing. Um, if one saw it as the primary reality to be manipulated for the satisfaction of all one's basic needs, uh, beginning with the babyhood problem of reaching for one's mother's arms, uh, leading through all the separation from what one loves that the business of living brings, then it was not so surprising that it should be the preoccupation of the painter. She's talking about space there. 
Uh, so it became clear that if painting is concerned with the feeling conveyed by space, um, it also has to do with the problems of being a separate body in a world of other bodies uh, which occupy different bits of space. In fact, it must be deeply concerned with ideas of distance and separation and having and losing. Wow. Distance, separation, having and losing. It's interesting, too, that this makes me think about, like, that, that like typical scene you see in like a, I know I, I I I don't I don't want to dumb this down and compare this to like television or or movies but when you see like the scene of the ch- the child that's undergone like some traumatic event and he's in the therapist's office and they're talking right. to him he's always they right they always have them coloring and and then it made right. me, and then it made me think about how like when when you're drawing or you're doing something with with your hand in that kind of, in in that whether it's painting or drawing or sketching there's like a a yearning for your hand your hand takes on this kind of agency to want to make the thing that's on the paper right. a continuation of you right right and that's right. kind of what she's talking about when she talks about this is ideas of distance and separation and having and losing right right that there's a wholeness you're trying to hold on to when you put right. pen, some kind of pen to paper. Um, definitely that and um, the ways that objects are going to, um, you know, impinge upon each other or occupy their own space necessarily, right? Even that the, the relationships between external things is going to say something about your individual psyche so that there's nothing we can touch in some way that's not going to say something about our own individual psyche and, and, the, and the kind of primal situation for that's going to take going to always take you back to a family kind of dynamic a family drama or or, right. a sen- or an original sense of loss and that's where i get into the religious kind of movement right because the or- original sense of loss is not going to be a union with a, a creator deity the original sense of loss in a psychoanalytic sense is always going to be a sense of closeness with your mother, um, um, an inseparability from your mother um, that is going to be broken when you identify yourself, you know, because the, the moment in which you identify yourself, you are no longer merged with the mother, right? And then you're so, broken. You're, you're gone, right? That you're out of Eden. Yeah, you're broken. You're gone. Alienated. Um, Right, there, there are stages of narcissism in which you need uh, a sort of replacement for that former sense of belonging. You know, it's really right. funny, man. Have you ever, as an adult, grabbed, like, some crayons and sat down with some construction paper? Because this really uh, interesting feeling emerges where it's, like, actually kind of exactly what you're saying. Like, it's almost like you're the child inside of you yeah. embodies your adult body and but it, and it's like this weird almost like a metempsychosis right to use that term from yesterday where like it every yeah. time and space kind of mer- the past merges with the present and you feel it bro it's like very interesting you should try you should try it i know right. it's funny no but that's well that's that's where, where i'm leading with this that i thought that for me i definitely wanted to be want to do some drawing exercises and see what comes of that maybe talk about it with you but i thought that we each might you know use this not just to talk about some great things we read, but might take some challenges upon ourselves and kind of report upon that. Um, I have this book, and I have also this other great book about, about um, I think, there's three things that I had in mind. One was to make some sketches. Another was I wanted to uh, read along with the um, with the weekly Torah por- portions. 
And the third was I have a book about Stoicism written by a scholar I, I, I respect, and, I, and he has some exercises in mind which he kind of pulls from, you know, Epictetus and 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 the. And the uh, I would you know, love. I, I, I would love that we could even dedicate an episode to one episode per practice or exercise. Definitely, definitely. Right? That would be really cool. So for me, and, and this kind of gets back into what I was saying to you yesterday, with you know, there's a very personal uh, component to this that I have always felt very. Um, at home in the world of thought, but that world of merger, and this goes back to my own um, original separation, right? Because there's something called in Freud, the narcissistic scar, uh, which, which relates to every rejection thereafter, which um, um, it has... We'll talk about that for a second. What, where, what is a scar? What is a narcissistic scar? Um, the narcissistic scar, let me find just kind of like a um, an official or narcissistic injury, right? Um, or narcissistic blow. Um, Sounds like the mark of Cain to me, right? I think maybe, I'm, I'm sure you could relate the two. But um, let me see. So I'm just going to say, this is just a, I'm just, this is, I mean, very basic. This is, but. It's a Sigmund Freud used the uh, phrase in the 1920s, narcissistic wound, narcissistic blow. Um, the model underlying the construct suggests that narcissistic injury occurs when a narcissist feels that their hidden true self has been revealed. Um, this may be the case when the narcissist experiences fall from grace. And narcissism here has to be understood just as that, as that original state of a merger with, with a parental figure. Um, the original state is narcissism? Well, narcissism is the subsequent state of, of attempting to regain that original merger. I think is the probably the best way best way to put it. Because, um, because we separate from the mother and, and grow into a and, and grow into our own person, uh, some people develop narcissism as a way as a way to recon. It's like a it's like the brain trying to the, or the ego trying to reconnect with with the with the mother. Yeah, and it's because there's a wholeness there. Yeah, um, so um, Freud maintained that uh, loss of love and failure leave behind them a permanent in, a permanent injury to self regard uh, in the form of a narcissistic scar, uh, reflecting the full extent to which he has been scorned. Right, so um, it's the original rejection, so to speak. Right, you know, it, it's archetypal rejection. Everyone recognizes the. The, the the you know the um the danger that rejection sort of um um kind of poses for everybody right right and that, and that person which is which 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 lives who lives uh, fearlessly um is maybe as fearful of a certain kind of rejection as as the kind that lives sheepishly there right? like we it's like there is a, a certain kind of um of being cast out, and this too is this, this being cast out of the Eden state, right? That there's a state of equilibrium or a state of innocence um, in which you feel, in some ways, you've been rejected from or turned away from, or or, or which um, hasn't held in a certain way, right? Right, and that that rejection is, in a sense, worse than death, right? Yeah. Well, um, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I. I think the two are definitely related, right? Because that because the that the mother as primacy is associated always with vitality, right? 
And so being cast out, being associated also with death or separation itself being associated with death. So death being the mother of all beauty or the principle of differentiation. Right. You know, just as you can look at the world and, you know, you separate the world into pieces. Um, the, the psychoanalytic or the myth making is to connect um, the ability to separate even even one thing from another. Uh, from that uh, original separation, which is not longed for, right? Which is where you're where you're sort of ripped away from a sort of um, enclosure that um, that you might try to reclaim thereafter in other ways that um, that are impermanent or that can't e- that can't ever necessarily duplicate that original sense of fullness. That Hebrew word pleroma, right? The, an, an original sense of completeness or fullness that um that you begin with right right yeah and then um so it seems that so milner sets out to paint or draw right and through this kind of uh experience or experiment she finds that there's a sort of wholeness in allowing well allowing for what well i don't know if it's a so, I mean, it's kind of more just a kind of curious, um, it's a kind of deep dive into her own mind, right? So if I follow, so one of her great kind of, um, uh, uh, you know, one of the great kind of psychoanalytic writers of, Brit- of the British school who's, who writes today is Adam Phillips. Okay. Um, and he has this book called Attention Seeking, and he's very much following uh, in her line. He'll, he'll, he'll mention her often. Attention Seeking? Yeah, he has a book called Attention Seeking where he calls it a good thing. Okay. Um, But he writes this. He says, um, he's talking about literature and psychoanalysts. And he says, they work by making us self-conscious about the nature and the quality of our attention, our language. By drawing our attention to certain preoccupations, they make us wonder what our attention may be seeking and avoiding. So that's the crucial thing. And that's what she's trying to figure out by drawing. She says, okay... It, it might not be so simple. I, I sit down and I want to draw this scenery, but always, even though I want to draw something, I discover something about my attention. There's something always I'm seeking and there's something I'm avoiding. And what those things are is not going to be, we're not going to finish the podcast by saying, this is what that was and this is what, you know, this is what I was seeking and this is what I was avoiding. It's a very mysterious process, you know? Right, and there's something revel- revelatory about just the act of sitting down and watching what you're drawing. Kind exactly. Of watching what your hand does. Watching what your hand does. Um, and then that that's an interesting idea because the right the we talk about the mind body connection right, and for so long that we thought that right. the, there was like a true dichotomy, and it seems like now <clears throat> the more we understand them, the more we we we're finding out that there's a real deep connection. But more importantly, that the right, and this even goes back to what the ancients thought—that like it, every organ, every every part of our body is kind of alive in its own way and has a, its own kind of consciousness, right? The way like your fingertips experience things are different than the way like your elbow is going to experience something. So in that sense, right, there is an agency in 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 our entire body, right? And that's another thing that Freud point, pointed out was the just the multiple personalities that exist in in the average individual and right and then on top of that you have your body that kind of has it seems to have its own agenda from time to time 
Right, right. And um, <coughs> in a romantic or a, or a psychoanalytic kind of uh, way of looking at things, spirit is going to be... Um, it's another way to say meaning. Spirit is what you transfuse with meaning. So Spirit um, is what you transfuse with meaning. Right. Um, is that connected to the will in any way? Well, the will. I mean, I, I mean, the will can come or go as we as as uh, right. as we need it. Right. Right. Uh, um, can I read but, you a quote from Chesterton, or do, do you want to say something? Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Sure. So this is from a piece of chalk. So I mean, it's interesting because you know one of the one of the things that set off this whole podcast was kind of my love for Chesterton, and and it's just specifically this essay. I haven't really read anything else by him, and this essay is titled "A Piece of Chalk." And what the, essentially what's going on is he he's like living in a renting a room from a landlady and has the desire on a summer day to go outside and just draw. Right, right, right. Which right. is like you know exactly what's going on in Milner. You know, and they're both doing right. this kind of like psychological study of themselves but he um you know he kind of talks about perspective and 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 intention right he says uh i crossed one swell of living turf after another looking for a place to sit down and draw do not for heaven's sake imagine i was going to sketch from nature i was going to draw devils and seraphim and blind old gods that men worshipped before the dawn of right and saints in robes of angry crimson, and seas of strange green, and all the sacred or monstrous symbols that look so well in bright colors on brown paper. They are much better worth drawing than nature. Also, they are much easier to draw. (laughs) (laughs) Right, so... The clincher's the final line. The clincher's the final line, right? And then, I mean, he goes on to explain... There's more, I just stopped, but he goes on to talk about how, you know, there's cows in front of him, a collection of cows, and he's like, you know, he kind of mentions... And I I think Milner said something about that in terms of, like, drawing a room. It's like, she's not really interested in it, and he's not really interested in drawing the cow, right? It's already perfect. There's a perfection to whoever drew that. Right. Well, that's why why I say that they're that they're coming that they're steeped in the romantic tradition, right? Right. Because the romantic tradition is going to look at um, um, kind of photorealism as dead letter, as dead right? letter, at, right? That you have to figure out some kind of um, you have to transfuse those two things: private meaning and the bare fact that somehow, the, and that's what mind and body are, right? Um, Say that one more time, because I think that was that that's, that was great. Well, I said private meaning, and we associated that once again with love, uh, with dreams, <clears throat> where everything is significant and everything has to do with you, right? That um, and she even even here makes the um, you know when you're in love with a particular person, the way you're going to look at them has nothing to do with like a you know an arbitrary list of qualities right there is a transfigured sort of um way of looking upon something that one transfuses with a certain meaning right yeah i think i even found the quote you're talking about she says um it was a transfiguration comparable in a small way to the transfiguration of falling in love right Right, right. But, but although such is, a vital... This is platonic, right? This is as old as Plato, who... who and for Plato, Eros 
is the call to philosophy and inseparable from thought itself. So the movement to a to higher, um, even abstract thought moves upon a path um, of 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 love, right? Where one um, finds a image of beauty in something material, and then slowly, like 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 up a ladder, uh, sort of with sort of finds a quintessence or or a principle of beauty um, that that experience reveals, right? Right, and 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 you know, the, and the way and your and uh, the individual's relationship to that is 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 uh, is in a sense a kind of worship, right? So it just becomes it becomes um it it becomes a secular kind of worship because religions removed out of it, but all of the movements, all of the gestures, right, and all of the maybe even the end results are the same. Right. Uh, I started started to cut you short. Can you go on with that quote? Can you read that through? Yeah, absolutely. It um, she says, but although such a vital experience, it was something that often for months together never happened. Because of this, it could leave one vaguely preoccupied and continually searching for its return. And this is even what me and you talked about with like the idea of the like uh, the miracle, right? Or something ha- right. coming. You don't know when it's going to come, but you still have to um, align yourself, your vision, and 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 your body in a way. As if the miracle is going to happen tomorrow or right now, right? Right, right, right. And, and there's something else very crucial. Um, well, so sorry, just continue. She says, um, because of this, it could leave one vaguely preoccupied and continually searching for its return, discontented with the common sense world, but also vaguely resentful that such moments could so interfere by their contrast with the common sense pleasures of living. And all the right. time one could have a lurking doubt whether this view of the world might not be somehow more real than the common sense one. Yeah, and that, that's, right. that's, a painful, that's a painful idea, right? Yeah, well, well I, mean, I mean, that's something we've touched upon uh, a couple times in recent conversations, right? So what, is, I mean, what, what does that make you think when you encounter that? <clears throat> I want to share two quotes afterwards uh, um, by two romantics to kind of show how, how that connects, but... Um, what, I mean, what does that make you think of? I mean, it makes me think of a lot. It makes me think of Alice in Wonderland. Uh, it makes me think of, just because I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, it makes me think of Chesterton. There's just a very interesting little moment in the opening of A Piece of Chalk where he goes and it asks his landlady for paper. Can I, can I read it really quick? Yeah, well, I, I was also kind of wondering what you, how you, what you, what you personally associate with that. But, but so, you, so you think this quote relates to what to that? Just because, the kind of the horror yeah. of like when you realize that the that the that what we call everyday life is is right. e- extraordinary and it's kind of transfused with all of this creative energy. When you realize that, it's it's like it, you know it's a feeling that you want to share because in a sense it's a high, it's euphoric, and then when you go. If you go and you try, or you don't, or you just kind of go, and after that realization, you interact with another person, and that right. other person right away, you can tell, just doesn't doesn't see what you see. I mean, it's very right. dis- it's very disappointing and alienating. And, and, and if it's a it's a group of people and you're the only one, it's even worse. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Right? It's like being around a. It's like having a sense of humor around a bunch of people that don't have a sense of humor. Right, I think this has always been kind of one of the principles by which I find my friends, because there's a certain squinting quality, right? right. There's a certain sense of disbelief or of 
um, a certain sense that that the room was just lit a second ago, and right. you can't and that something is quite changed, right? And, and so that you can't take the world as if or for granted anymore because you know that something's kind of off, and right. so you can't speak anymore quite in the same way. Yeah, and the the reason why I brought up Chesterton because at the beginning of of the of the essay he goes and well, he's he had, a romantic too, right? Chesterton is just a late romantic, right? Yeah, it was just the, the that that uh, to me like that whole moment gets is like per, he it actually gets experienced because he he goes to the landlady and he asks her for paper to draw, uh, and she gives him lined paper, but he wants brown paper. She only uh-huh. she can't fathom that the that the brown paper is for anything than other than tying up parcels. Right, right. So immediately there's this disconnect, right? Because he's asking her for the brown paper, and he's trying to explain to her, no, I want to draw on that. She right. only sees it as for tying up parcels. She doesn't see it the way that he sees it. And there's a certain richness in that brown paper that when he draws on it, it kind of brings his characters to life. Right, right. Right, so he, to, to me, that's a perfect example of that right there, right? We're like... It's just not seen both ways. She doesn't see the paper the way he sees the paper, right? She sees she's in that common sense world of brown paper is for wrapping up things to send, right, in the mail. Right. Where in a sense he's and he lives in a world that's suffused with, in this sense, the romantic and the religious tradition, where everything is teeming with a with a kind of possibility. Right, right, and but but that too. In in any religious tradition, you learn about God necessarily by learning that you're exiled. Right, it's always going to be inseparable. You're never going to learn about God and have an apotheosis, and that be the learning about God is almost is always simultaneous with an exile from the kingdom. We'll talk more. Talk a little more about that. that I, I, that's interesting. Um, here, let me offer these two quotes. Right, and then, okay, and then, and okay. So this first one's Thoreau. Um, when I was doing my translation for my Spanish exam, I, I read, uh, you know, uh, Borges' kind of uh, studies in American literature. He this was he thought this was Thoreau at his most poetic, and I I think it might be too, but it's very short. It could be like a prose poem, uh, but it's from Walden. It's just a very short part. And he says this. He says, "I long ago lost a hound, a bay horse, and a turtle dove." And I'm still on their trail. Many are the travelers I've spoken concerning them, describing their tracks and what calls they answered to. I have met one or two uh, who had heard the hound and the tramp of the horse and even seen the dove disappear behind a cloud. And they seemed as anxious to recover them as if they had lost them themselves. Wow. That's cool, man. Really kind of dark. Almost, I mean, kind of sounds like an Edgar Allan Poe. Um... Somewhat like at Edgar Allan Poe, but Edgar Allan Poe is always going to be. Um... I mean, maybe dark, maybe not Poe. Poe's a little more elaborate, right? A lot of repetition. Right. Um, not elaborate, but decorative. Yeah, well, a much more morbid, a morbid version of the romantic sensibility morbid, probably relate. Yeah, much more like that's why, like the late, the late French writers, the symbolists, love him. Yeah. You know, because. There's a certain fixation, right, or or a certain sense of like almost like phantom pangs, right, like his his repetitions. Right. But this is, to my mind, you know, much more like a like a Wordsworthian, and that's what the next thing I'm going to share, right. But just a sense of uh, 
uniting with these different people and almost having this unspeakable connection to them because of the sense of something lost. Something lost right? and, and the quest to retrieve it. And the quest to retrieve it being simultaneous with uh, retrieval in, in a certain way. Or the moment of culmination being inseparable from the from the notion of it, of, of it being lost. Right? Say that say that last part again. That the moment the moment of recognition, and this goes back to the thing that you know um, at least I, at least we can remember that we forget, right? right. Which is the same notion of like a of a, a certain anamnesis or a certain kind of remembrance of past lives, right? A, a brief flicker, right? That you might remember in certain moments um, that the oblivion that the oblivion that other moments covered, right? So. So, but that can never be in every waking moment, right? It, it's a certain sort of um, mourn. There's a certain mournful quality to it, or there's a certain elegiac quality to it, right? There's a certain elegiac quality for a power or primacy that cannot be recovered. Um, but if it's remember, if we if we can recall to some degree in these moments of where we recognize. Um, the poverty that accompanies our everyday sight, um, then that then, then you can somehow recall, to some degree at least, that that what once was, right? And could we say that like art or the? Um... That's part of the. That's one. That's part of the essential. That's just one of the essential parts of the Romantic myth and of the uh, of the myth, frankly, of like a of like you know a Judeo Christian tradition too, you know. Right, and, and 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 like art and the and the creative art to be an attempt to, a, 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 a one of those attempts at re- reconnecting to that wholeness. Yeah, yeah. Well, even the um, the art artifact in like an object oriented theory would, would be a substitute, not the thing itself, right? Because whether you want to think about it as a mother or a primordial origin or oneness with nature. You, you can't have that again, right? You can't go back to that. Um, but there but there are moments where there, where you where there are substitutes, right where once again you can sort of um, when you're absorbed in a certain artistic activity, for instance, you can experience a certain kind of careless kind of freedom. Um, uh, your, your stress might fall away for a moment. It might be as if briefly there, there, there are there are moments of return. It's like that losing yourself, right? Like the like the image of the drummer, or the or the guitar. The exactly. guitar is kind of in the solo with their eyes closed, almost like it's a like they're having kind of a religious experience. Right, and and you might have freedoms too, like you said, like uh, you might have certain uh, freedoms in terms of the of your range of spirit. That you don't have in, in your in terms of your everyday kind of scared kind of scrunched up self, you know. Right. Are right, you want to read that Wordsworth? Uh, the Wordsworth very similar to what I said, but just written in beautiful verse. But he, this is from his famous. This is kind of a uh, you know. It's in some ways, it's like the Ars Poetica or the keynote of Romanticism, right? So this is animations of immortality. He says, um, <coughs> "The rainbow comes and goes, and lovely is the rose." The moon doth with delight look round her when the heavens are bare. Waters on a starry night are beautiful and fair. The sunshine is a glorious birth. But yet I know wherever I go, 
that there hath passed away a glory from the earth. Wherever I go, there's passed a glory from the earth. Right? Like, everywhere we go as humans, we seem to carry that loss with us. We carry that loss with us, and it's inseparable from our ability to... um, to reclaim it, right? Like, uh, I guess, I guess what, what what my question was, and I didn't maybe realize it or I didn't articulate it in the beginning when I mentioned Neumann and the the idea of the Great Mother, is isn't is because the the Romantics right had a real love of nature and a focus on nature. Is the is that is that also kind of what maybe there's a yearning for in the human spirit to return back to to when we were animals, right? To to kind of uncivilize ourselves, right? Because there, there's something very limiting in civilization and language and all of these these fairy tales, to use the Chesterton line, that we've created for ourselves, right? They're also very limiting because they're all predicated on all these ifs. Right. Um, so is there an yeah, al- also that yearning for the, the great mother is not just your mo- your biological mother, but mother the earth? Yeah. Definitely, right? Yeah. Well, that's why it's a triple aspect, right? That's why it's both sheltering and frightening, right? Um, right. And the great story is of trying to... Um, that, that it has a terrible aspect, just like, the, you know, the terrible father of the Judeo-Christian culture, right? Right. Uh, so you don't want to be engulfed by it, right? And this always goes back to eating, right? So both... Um, there are both mothers and fathers that have a cannibalistic style, uh, which someone like Neumann would relate to a overbearing mother, right? That 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 merges with you to such a degree, to a degree, or so overbearing, it's as if she doesn't allow uh, even even a small degree of separation, right? So she she'll so gobble you up, right? Right. Um. And yeah, there's always the desire for a return, even though it's complicated to some kind of pre-linguistic state. But um, that's sort of the paradox too: is that is that it cannot be, right? Well, it that's also the paradox, cannot... right? So it can't just be like Survivor Man. That that it's like um, that you know, Gershom Sholem often wrote about this, right? He said, you know, there's a paradox where the more commentators there are the further we get from scripture right because every commentary is gonna is going to be another um mediator that keeps you from the power of the original word right that also kind of sounds like postmodernism, right <laughs> it is exactly that but the <laughs> yeah. difference the difference is he's going to be is he's going to say along the along the lines he learns from kafka that that distance is paradoxically what unites you in the end to the thing itself that that the further you get to it in a paradoxical way you're always getting closer to it too it seems to be that like there's an enormous amount of truth in life to be found through the idea of the paradox definitely right and why do you think that is like why why is why is the paradox such a recurring function in in wisdom and human understanding. Um, it's a, it's like a, you know, it's a, the great reconciler. You know, um, it cannot be 
it's simultaneous to experience and that it cannot be e- easily dissected, right? It's like um, there's like a famous quote about Proverbs um, in the Hebrew Bible. I think the word is mashaf or the proverb. And then they said uh, a, a rabbi says a, a proverb's like a porcupine. Either side you pick it up on, it pricks you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I mean, just think about all, you know, everything that Jesus spoke, a lot of the stuff, a lot of the wisdom from Jesus and, a lot, uh, and the other, a lot of other religious traditions, it's all given to you through paradox. Riddles, right, where you kind right, of have the paradox, riddle, riddle. Where you have to work through it, and yeah, and I guess you're right, in a sense it mirrors life, life is itself a paradox. Yeah, a paradox, um, and then there's always that, 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 you know, the aspect of, the, of, uh, of, what 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 might be too binary, right? Separating things that belong together um, in a way that's sometimes destructive, right? right? Like um, that need to be brought back. Um, in, uh, uh, the Blakeian term would be contraries. That, for instance, we to to speak of innocence and experience, except in direct relationship to each other, um, is sort of unintelligible, right? So when you're innocent, you have these ideals, right? And you think about experience as um, maybe a loss of those ideals. But but if you really look carefully, right, in, in every kind of hardened man and in, in where they most exhibit their experience, you always see where those ideals previously were. Or innocence, or virginal innocence that has been kind of tarnished to some degree, right, where the, the roughness is where a certain ideal once was, and it still is in, in a certain way, right? Right. Their attitude towards certain things, their actions, right? Right. Or, or they might be might be hardened towards a certain thing um, because that because they were wounded, and that hardness, just like you know, the hardening of a scar is exact uh, uh, shows the, the fault lines of that wound, right? Right. Yeah. You could almost trace their their ideals by. Um, in some ways, where where they where they exhibit a certain kind of experience, right? Right. Yeah, man. Um, do you want to read some more of the some quotes from Milner? Yeah. Um, this is actually kind of related to what you were the difference between mind and matter, right? And she's quoting Santayana here. You know, Santayana with you know a great Harvard philosopher. He's so uh, almost a, a the colonialism guy, philosopher. right? What's that? The the colonialism guy, George Santayana. Didn't he? Didn't he? Coin you, the... I think you're thinking Edward Said. Said, yeah. I'm sorry. Okay, I'm my bad. Yeah. So you got your S's. Yeah. It's uh um yeah um. Santayana was a big influence on Wall Stevens. He was one of Wall Stevens' teachers at Harvard. Okay. But um. He says, a god is a conceived victory of mind over matter. Right? So he's talking about just the same thing, right? A god uh, is a conceived victory of mind over matter. Whoa, that's fucking amazing. Right, well, and, that, and, that's, and that's the role of the Greek gods to some degree, right? Of right. the unfolding of the Greek. Because all the Greek gods in some ways are principles of a certain calm repose. Right. Where before the uh, the um, Sithonian or Earth-like gods were were always um, um, forces of th- that 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 could never be imagined in terms of repose, 
right? So man had to achieve some kind of solidity before the gods became, um, to, so to speak, so, lounged at feasts rather than participating in the worlds. They stepped out of the world, so to speak, right? right? Rather than being terrifying forces like the thunder as a terrifying force um, and that you had to cower from, all of a sudden they, they, they took repose in the in the in the in in the pantheons right they they could play amongst themselves in a certain degree right well how dope is that idea in the context of what we talked about yesterday in terms of leisure right and how kind of a yeah. leisure can only come after a certain kind of progress exactly right so and that's what and that's what someone like the greek gods are right they are leisured all always right even when even when they're causing havoc they themselves are are always leisurely yeah they, they always have a, a cluster of grapes in their hand when they're when they're doing something terrible right 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 and i mean it, it also kind of reflects the progress of the uh, of of the of the greeks right as a people being able to change their yeah. metaphysics yeah exactly right but that's the that's the great kind of unfolding uh, of the um, the Oresteia is when the Furies are transformed into the you 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 I never know how to say it right the you might or something like pretty much the good the good forces of a civil of a civilized Athens right so the Furies the demonic Furies which are um, um, a prin- principled on uh, uh, on revenge on blood oaths you know. On a, on a kind of different system, they are sort of um, sanctified in a in a kind of cultural center and become good forces. That's fucking interesting. Um, <laughs> so you want to keep reading this on the other, or you want to? Yeah. Well, he just says. I mean, that's a visible God is the consciousness of such a victory momentarily attained. It has to be momentary, right? The victory soon vanishes. The sense of omnipotence is soon dispelled by recurrent conflicts with hostile forces. But the why, momentary... Why does it have to be momentary? Because, because the natural world is going to be a hostile place, right? Because the because the, those forces of the natural world, um, like all calm is fleeting. Yeah, calm is fleeting. Exactly. That's actually exactly. an interesting way to think about it. Like he, humans are an are animal of mo- we live in a moment to moment reality. Yeah, and there are certain moments, uh, um, uh, are, are certain cultural moments, right? Where where you know, like we think of certain things, right? Like uh, of an Athens, for instance, you know, which which is not even which was harassed in its own way, right? But we th- but there are certain moments, or you can even think about certain biblical moments, right? Uh, certain moments of repose from the long wandering, right? Because that's all it is. is it's a it's it's a it's a story of wandering where there are certain brief moments, right, of calm that are create where creative possibilities are allowed. Yeah. And then the rest is preservation to some degree in terms of in terms of you know a lot of different things that 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 threaten that with the 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 fruits of that repose, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's a really nice way to put it. Okay, go back to what you were saying. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, that, I mean, that's that's almost the end of the quote. So the momentary illusion of that realized good has left us with the perennial knowledge of good as an ideal. That has left us with... I mean, it's kind of our echoes a lot of what Peterson says about abstracted ideals and, right, 
the way that chimpanzees work. When he talks about chimpanzees and the alpha male, but the ideal well, yeah, being abstracted. Bring like, sorry, yeah, sorry. He's, he's going to bring like an Evo psych. Yeah, I'm not sure if that, I'm not sure if that's totally necessary or if that's kind of um. Is that it, if that? Go sorry, ahead. no. Go ahead. I wasn't. Oh well, I just don't. I'm not sure to what degree those ideas really um, affirm one another. Um, I, I have my questions about it, even though I'm very interested in it too, um, because both holds up. They holds up well enough. They hold up well enough on their own, right? Like um, um, ethology, right, or the study of animals. Like if you read like Conrad Lawrence, and maybe I can bring him one day, where he's like the great one of the great um, animal sort of observers. Um, and then you know, and you have an evo psych kind of explanation of human behavior, and you want to combine that with a mythic sense. Whether those things actually synthesize, or whether, or whether they just kind of speak to each other in interesting ways, is, is a question that's, that's yeah. just for up, up for debate, right? Yeah. Because I don't think he really has anything to add necessarily to what a Newman would say. He says also this is just interesting and might and might suggest something along similar lines, right? Right. Yeah. Um. Yeah, but Evo Psych is just uh, is just I, I'm just I'm still thinking about this a lot, but it just has its dangers, right? Because, um, because because you it's very hard to, and this is like maybe kind of goes to the controversy with the lipstick, right? Where he says that you know that there must that lit that you know the 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 usage of lipstick must be related to secondary sex characteristics. So, where, which he got into a lot of controversy over, right? So that when a woman uses lipstick in the workplace, whether she knows it or not, she's going to draw sexual attention to herself, right? Right. And that might might be a sort of unsophisticated usage of certain kind of evolutionary biological concepts, right? Right. But, yeah. Like, but, you, why why bring those ideas into into that realm when you can bring them into the mythic realm? Yeah. Well, or or just you want to be very careful about. Um, yeah, there's how, a, there's a lot of politics involved in that. Yeah, and 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 um, I mean, you just want to be careful in terms of of not repeating the mistakes of earlier scientists, right? You remember, like the early, like the phrenologists, right? Who yeah. were right on money, right? I mean, because uh, biology is, you have to be careful about the biologists because because they're refining their own ideas, right? Right, so. Um, Whereas, like somebody like a Santayana is looking at the past. Yeah, and cultural phenomenon is very complicated. Right. Right. So, in some ways, I mean, this is like the the thing that you learn in Vico, right? Vico says, "How how do you un- you understand somebody by what it makes, right? And what are people? Were the political animal, right? That's 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 the Arist- Zoan Politicon. That's mm-hmm. that's Aristotle, and that means." We are the people of the polis or the people of culture, right? So if culture is what we make, you're going to understand people best by understanding culture itself. What they in make. A, in, so you can't look at it in a reductive frame any right. more than you could look at bird song and understand it by, by way of their anatomies, right? The bird song, right? Yeah, yeah. You can't, you can't, you can't study evolutionary traits outside of cultural phenomenon. Yeah, and, and well, when you or, do so, you <laughs> risk the danger of talking about lipstick. Exactly, because right. you can't expect. Even though I love it, I really actually love it. 
but you can't expect an, an, an evolutionary psychologist to come to the same level of complexity as an historian or a sociologist who knows about um, all the complexities of that thing itself. Right. Right. Like a- anything you know well, there's going to be so many subtleties. That's a really great point. Because an evolutionary psychologist is going to look at hip hop and he's going to say that aggression exists. Right. Um, and he's going to tell you why aggression exists. And he's going to, but uh, an intraspecific con- uh, contest between two rutting males or something like that. Right. And does, does the fact that hip hop has an aggressive quality is that going to tell you why? Why when you listen to Cool G rap, you, you're willing to kill somebody, you know? <laughs> or do an you extra know? fifteen push-ups? Exactly. I mean, the, the fact that it's going to be aggressive is just an entrance into the door. It can't explain any of the upholstery of the of the actual house. Right. You know? yeah, right. Yeah. That's a great way. That that's a great analogy, right? It shows you the blueprints of the house, but not the what the the furniture. The the um the style every the whole entire all the stuff that really matters once you're in it. Yeah, especially things like irony or why why quiet gestures can be because that's the problem with the human beings, right? Is that we're the duplicitous animal or the trickster animal, right? So so the less so um even so even though other animals usually have a very are very performative, right? Right, and usually what they suggest is either a warning sign where it's an em- where it's empty or it means exactly what they suggest, right? In terms of in terms of their, their animal signaling, right? right? They're, they're very there's very little deception. There's not there's not going to be like I could come. All right, we're back. Um, but one thing one thing I think is an interesting idea because yeah, I think evolutionary biology is it's it's super important and it's becoming more popular and it's becoming mainstream and I think that's important. But I think one conversation I think we should talk we need to keep having on this podcast are the limitations of the scientific perspective. I was hoping we could talk about that next session because there's a great article that I wanted to bring bring up about about the two different domains of human life, you know, between the scientific and the human, um, or whether the humanities and the scientists, what are called, you know, the two cultures, right? Because, I mean, everybody knows what's won out, um, but the problem is, it, you know, but the problem is just that this, just because the sciences have more um, have sort of. Um, eclipsed the humanities people still need human uh products right i mean people still um so what happens is there's this this, these mutant forms that arise where people try to look to the sciences and recreate the humanities and so you get a bastardized that's not good science first of all but you get a sort of reduced or bastardized humanities because people want to, for instance, look at like um, astrology, let's say, and then rec- and like you know, so you listen to a Neil deGrasse Tyson, who, who's you know, I'm sure a very informed guy, but then you want to move directly to spirituality, right? But the but the the journey of man, you know, of the human being is always going to be, you know, um, the spiritual. Um, object you know as, as as wonderful as science is you know i mean you cannot like in the sam harris way uh learn the nature of mitochondria and then and then throw out the bhagavad gita right. and re, you know it's just uh because we're interested in two things right things that are made by man made by human beings right and and also that are not 
right? Yeah. And those things, and for those things that are not, we, we look at science, but but we are very interested in the things we make ourselves too, right? Yeah, that that's why I, I think one of the most interesting contemporary intellectuals is that guy Jonathan Haidt, right? He always talks about right. humans and as being religious animals, right? Like that's the that's our primary function is that that actually we make religion. I mean, well, that's what you know. That was the that was one of the main um, kind of contributions of this uh, of the sociologist or the father of sociology, um, Emil Durkheim. You know, so Dur- that was Durkheim's notion too, right? What is what's the way to study religion? The first way to, stu- to study it is a so- is as a sociological phenomenon, right? Because that's what it's obvious, right? To say what is religion? Let's forget about all the belief systems, a la Christopher Hitchens and the New Atheists. It's something that people always have done when they get together, right? right? So there's always a social function, right? Always a social function, right? Like where would uh, where would they, I mean what would have become of a very vital aspect of the African American experience, right? If they did not have as a respite for a hostile white America, the church in which it was the one place that was not colonized or that they did not lose often. Maybe sometimes they did, but sometimes they retained um, even after uh, the assimilationist kind of um, what, what, what I mean, however you want to look at it. Right. Because Zora Neale Hurston uh, didn't want to, to 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 merge cultures. Right. She, she she didn't want to go to the white school. She wanted to preserve their own, the, the culture of, uh, you know, the African from the African diaspora. Right. Right, but, and so, sometimes the only way to preserve traditions is to couch them into new tradition, right? Into into other traditions. Well, that's the Jewish, right? That's the that's the history of of Judaism, right? But that's also the, a defensive strategy, right? I mean, it's very creative, but it's defensive, right? It's like as if we were being overheard right now by someone hostile to us, and we had to learn a code language. Right. Would that be? Would that be creative immensely? Um, would our ideas all of a sudden be be suffused or combined in an interesting way with whatever ideas we had to um, overlay our, our our natural ideas with? Yes, but it would be. A, but we. Would, but you know. But it's not something we would desire, right? It's it's one once more something beautiful that would grow out of a hostile situation, right? Sounds like Yiddish. Well, that's exactly what Yiddish is, right? Yeah. That's exactly what Judaism is in general, right? Because because Judaism. Um, is really, as we understand it, mostly or most, um, it, there, the, it's, it, it's, um, Hebraism itself already combines with, with Athens, right? Necessarily already, right? Like the, the apocalyptic literature that, that becomes Christianity, you know, from, from the Enoch tradition, well, starting with the prophets moving through Enoch, um, is especially influenced by, by, Christian by uh, Greek mysticism and obviously the the Persian cultures that that were that were around at, at the time, right? Right. Um, this whole notion of the, the the fight between good and evil is Zoroasterism essentially. Right. Uh, yeah. You know. that, yeah. The concept of Ahura Mazda. Exactly, but you know, like being uh, created by an evil creator. Exactly, but but there is a way in which you try to hide something in a different vessel. And that and you're all, and, and that inevitably there's going to be a transformation just just because of, of whatever that vessel might be right an right. interesting fusion right right yeah but at at, at its core the, yeah um, you know the interesting thing about the word religion I think it comes from a Latin word regare which meant to bind yeah oh yeah oh yeah um, 
Yeah, um, which is very interesting, right? For for for, for a lot of reasons. Um, I mean, you you know, even like the sense of 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 a symbol or symbolum, you know, being a binding pact, right? Because this a symbolum was like a, a was a shard that was broken, where you have one piece and I have another, right? And um, and and so there's a there's a binding promise in, in terms of the covenant, right? Right, in terms of um, upholding a certain a certain way of life and and, and that and, and a religious power answering um, to those who bind themselves with some kind of veto, right? Once again, right, with with some kind of um, usually in terms of in terms of uh, uh, a discipline, right? right. Because uh, because wow. the law, right? The law, the law is going to be what binds you, right? That, right? I just thought, what's more creative, right? Just thinking about all everything we've been talking about with uh, the discussion on Milner and um, uh, and Chesterton and and the the revelatory uh, the revelatory um, discovery that happens when you're drawing or you're doing any kind of creative act. And I thought to myself just now, what's more creative than the creating the law? Right and like creating some elaborate religious tradition that you uphold and then try to pass down through the ages, like that's also a creative act, right? Oh yeah, well it's it's um it's a creative act and it's a reco- recapitulation of an original creative act. And right? maybe all of this is to it, it, all of this is one big attempt at filling that lo- that loss or that break. Well, that well that's what modernists. Or or, or, or or um students of modernism have, have talked about for hundreds of years now um and it's very complicated right because the question is always this is are we talking about a loss of a of religion or or are we once again talking about that primordial loss original loss um a loss of some primary mythic sense of belonging right because there's not a mythic system that isn't um that isn't um run through or really soaked with a sense of some prior conditions you know then some 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 sort of disaster right and then some notion of recovery right and that and that 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 repeats itself so often as to be it, it, it's just one of the patterns that runs throughout everything right right um you know i mean when were things so good, right? You even hear this is the, I mean, it just, people, people will do it with absolutely everything, right? When was it that things were so good or that things were okay, right? You know, people always think that they can, that they can discover, um, that that's discover. that's where people err, right? What I like about certain, uh, certain religion or, 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 or classical religion is how it, it holds completeness slightly aloof from the world, Right. Right. And instead it embraces suffering as a con- primary condition of existence, right? Exactly. Right. So that much more Christianity than Judaism, because right in Judaism, paradise is mostly a better earth. But earth still needs to be remade. Um, it needs to be remade um, according to the spirit of the imagination, really. Right. In Christianity, we're going to have something even it's not. um I mean, even that notion is even extended, right? The notion of paradise is even extended, right? And um, that's why I think America is a re- really interesting in in the in context of this of this whole conversation, right? Because 
if we can agree that like the the religious impulse is also a creative impulse and the writing of the law is is also some kind of an act of the imagination right and this yeah. is all an extension of the of the metaphor that Milner uses of her drawing right and just having your 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 hand your uh the pen or the or the or the paintbrush on the page or on the canvas if that is kind of of a metaphor for you living for just being or for experience right then like what christianity has managed to do this elaborate creative story has a has managed to create this other story called the individual and then it's other and now this there's this great big masterpiece being created called america and within it there's right a collection of these individuals under these rule these artistic rules you can say trying to live out some kind of version of experience right Right. and that's why to me like every time i think about all this in the context trump becomes interesting as a president right because he in in that sense then it kind of lines up perfectly with all these impulses um i don't know he seems to me one of the least creative people in my mind, in my mind, so he does. You know. He does. But I guess, in other words, if like, if all of, if every, if every American was drawing their idea of president, the draw in in the way that Milner explains drawing, where it's kind of this unconscious experience, right? He is kind of the revelation of the of our superego, or of the unconscious. Right, so like it's, it seems like well, he's much more like the like like he's like the id than the super or the ego. I'm sorry, the it, yeah, right. But like if like every American was drawing blindfolded their their idea of a president, it would end up being him. Yeah, well, there is this kind of monstrous of the- notion of what it means to be American. Yeah, yeah. Well, there is a, there is there is a, a feeling of the monster let out the cage, right? right? Because or like. like uh, I mean, there there are these also redeeming qualities about how about him. I mean, like if we talk about some of the policies, and he you know he just signed he just normalized economic relations between Kosovo and uh, Serbia. Mm-hmm. You know, and like there's all these things that are kind of contrary to the to his nastiness, that just it, right seem to me to be kind of more creatively interesting than maybe is talked about. Yeah. You know, like uh, the pardoning of a lot of, you know, he pardoned a lot of these people. He made some prison reform, the most prison reform in 60 years. He just, I, I don't know, there's all these things that kind of are cr- contrary to his, uh, to his public appearance. Yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe, the, maybe you'll be the chronicler of that one day, or you can... No, well, I'm trying to tie it into this whole notion of, of, of drawing as kind of active experience. Um, right, because isn't it, isn't what's isn't isn't what's revealed through the draw the act of drawing kind of um, slightly mysterious, slightly monstrous revelations about yourself? Yeah, but I think the idea would be that 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 you you would want to contain it, right, right, in some kind of um, harmless exercise, rather than rather than rather than use like a uh, you know. Rather than experiments on, on the grandest scale in the most powerful country, and the, you know, that's the problem with the notion of the American experiment, right? right. It can it's always like end in nuclear disaster. Project. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you know, sometimes we want our experiments limited, right? Because, you know, tell, you know, for instance, you know, like, you know, if you're sampling a drug, you know, have a limited sample group before you let me know what's going on with it. You know, it's kind of a big. Yeah. You, you like know what child. my problem is, is I, I, I think I make that same kind of mistake of trying to tie the political realm to the mythic realm or I try to tie art. And literature into oh, yeah. current. Well, yeah. that itself is a kind of merger, right? That itself is a kind of collapse. It's a it's a fearful thing, right? I mean, a lot of the great poets. I mean, Ezra Pound is almost unreadable because of his relationship to fascism, right? But, but the fascism of Ezra Pound is simply his poetics extended beyond where they should have been, right? You know, what right. made perfect sense in terms of poetics was disastrous in terms of a political sensibility. And that's the danger of mixing these things, right? And that, again, is why the study of culture and what, what you're talking about is so important is because culture is, is, is the study of particulars, right? And, and, that, and yeah. the intellectual is the study of particular things. And I think that's the, one of the follies of what it means to be modern and, like, definitely our millennial brains are so molded on just kind of this, like, spark notes version of reality where we want to like relate easy we want to relate like images right because it, it's it's a very reductionist way of thinking if you can if you can spot something that you've recognized right that you that seems a little familiar to something that yep. you that you're that you that you might know a little more about well it's also the danger between evo psych too and it's part of just human pattern making and association right, right but you don't want to leap between domains Right. Uh, with 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 such um, with such little care. Right. Right. And, you know what makes a good poet is not what makes a good politician. You know you you don't want W. B. Yeats who who did enter politics, you know, as your advisor. You know that's something I'm dealing. You know, so, so, which right. something I'm dealing with and people deal with in grad school. You know, is that that what you know six, what what might make for success in one domain has very little to do with. Um, you know what might make a good politician, right? Yeah, I guess that's the fear of living in a kind of this postmodern world is uh, the, the 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 kind of the oozing of boundaries that you see, right? And it seems like yeah, everything's kind of merging and melt. Go ahead. Oh, that was a big thing with the romantic poets, right? That almost all of them, obviously, so they were um, so they were seeking. Uh, a sort of revolutionary experiment in terms of their poetics, right? And so most of them were on board with the French Revolution, right? right? But then all of a sudden, Robespierre is beheading everybody, right? He's out of control, and he's he doesn't have the mindset of a poet. His mindset is frighteningly rationalist. This right. goes back to what Chesterton is talking about, where the difference between the poet who dreams of a tower to heaven or piling up mountains and then you have a kooky scientist who says, who says I'm going to do that right that's not you know so that's that's the, the great problem of not keeping the imagination within its own right boundaries you know or it's also the problem when, when imagination doesn't have a place to flourish right because when imagination doesn't have a place to flourish then people um, take take to the streets or they, they expend energy energy in these violent, wasteful ways, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Look what's going on now. Look what. Yeah. Look at the French Revolution. Look at what happened to the creation of not Nazi Germany after being broken down so many times. 
Right. And, and, yeah, and, and yeah, and just even how Nazi Germ- the, the Nazis were also one of those prime examples of of the tyranny of hyper rational culture. Yeah, and also also of a of, the, of a frightening possibility in the romantic myth itself, right? A frightening like, possibility in the romantic myth itself. Yeah, especially when it's charged with the with the with the certainty of ra- of rationality and logic. Exactly, those two things together were disastrous. Yeah, yeah, right? and then and then you sprinkle the industrial technology on top, and you have a horror show. Yeah, exactly. Right, but you know, like, I mean, the the usage of Wagner was there. There was was you know was it has been kind of famously described. Right. Um, we'll talk about the, that for a second because I just it's interesting to me. Well. I, it's, 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 it's a special kind of a crucial kind of I don't know as much about it as a lot of other people probably but it's, it's a really crucial de- uh, development in Nietzsche in Nietzsche where Nietzsche is very interested in the music of Wagner in terms of the Dionysian spirit um, and he thinks of him as a kind of um, cultural hero but then later on he kind of turns his back on Wagner or I think he sees a kind of despotism in him or a kind of mad, a kind of madness, a kind of single-mindedness, a kind of um, um, even even a kind of unartistic sensibility in some ways, right? A kind of literalism, right? Because there's nothing as unartistic as literalism, right? So that's a big problem when you're making the leap and you're trying to transfigure some some ideal into into reality, right? Because because what the great thinker, like a Nietzsche, wants to play with is the ideal. And the ideal cannot be incarnated. That's the great paradox of Christianity, and it has to remain a paradox. Right. That, that, that an ideal man was incarnated. But, like, Dostoevsky will write a book like called, like, like, The Idiot, where he just, he, where it's like a realist notion of what would happen if this man were actual. Um, which is also with, like, like the, 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 the Lawrence that I, that I, that um, I, I suggested to you the short story, uh, the man who died. Uh, yeah. When, you know, if this man were actual, um, what might that mean, right? Um, and it's and it's crucial that the ideal always remains a little bit out of this world, right? That that you don't that that you that you leave it a little bit. Um, same thing with like a temple, right? That. Um, the point of a temple or temenos is like a sacred space or a space marked off. And it's quite literally out of this world. I mean, it is, it's so far from anything that look that looks natural. Exactly, exactly. But but it allows aspiration a sacrificial space, right? Because aspiration has no end. It has no bounds. And it can easily destroy any given system, right? That's why, you know, Kenneth Burke called us rotten with perfection right because each of us tends to a certain kind of perfection right but there are certain ways that we protect against it like for watching sports for instance right um that these competitive gestures are contained in these highly formalized structures so in art there can there is no end to perfection in scholarship there is no end to perfection if the moral landscape were like that, which is what what they wanted to do in some ways in Nazi Germany, they wanted the nor- the moral landscape to 
to to almost have that romantic sensibility of of, of the Superman, right? Right. That's a that's a disaster, right? Right. Yeah, maybe because morality itself kind of it seems to exist in one of those paradoxical realms. Yeah, yeah, um, and that's a lot of it. A lot of um, the story of of how Christianity emerges um, in prophetic Judaism um, is after the destruction of what the Jewish people had, right? And what they had was the temple. That's tangible. That's material. That's limited, but in a beautiful way. And after so many years, right, of, of the first temple being destroyed, the, simple, the second temple being destroyed, um, this unbearable anticipation and the, the boiling of that unbearable anticipation where it's not good enough anymore if you get that back. And you think about a lot of this, the crises throughout history of what's going on with the Palestinians now. Right. It's not good enough just to get that back anymore. We we have to reclaim now something holy. We have to, you know, Jerusalem has to sweep over the whole world, right? Um, return to the Jerusalem that was is no longer possible, right? So then you start to think about what, what Enoch does, where you need to leave the world itself to even imagine, you know, the greater good. Wow. And that's a huge, that the, you know, a huge... Um, huge part of the story of the world you know yeah yeah it, 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 it's kind of funny how um, we have all these guys now like Elon Musk trying to trying to leave the world <laughs> oh yeah well that's just the same thing you know? right? and that's and that's the problem with um, you know that's the problem with with you know somebody of great intelligence who who lives in a in a time period that doesn't value Continuity or or a store, an historic an historic sensibility, right? And scientism in some ways in general, right? Because just because the IQ, the guy's an IQ of one eighty, people are going to listen to him talk about relationships and culture and where we're going. He doesn't know about any of those. Just because he built, he can build a rocket and he can you know make, make minds link. The guy has nothing to say about the other things. He 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 he's, he, he knows nothing about them. You know. Yeah, I mean, that's why, I don't know, I, 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 I kind of come back to this idea of these kind of, these things as being kind of anti-human. There's this real push towards an anti-human, almost an anti-Earth kind of sensibility. Definitely. That's emerging. Um, that's the, that's why, I guess one of the, one of the reasons why I love not only the romantics, but that guy Robert Harrison from that podcast, right, because he was always arguing for you know the hum- humanity to remain on the earth that we are we are of the earth definitely definitely and, and that's and that's very interesting right a lot of the return to the body which is what drawing is about too is an effort is always involved in an effort to return to the earth right right to return to the, and the ritual too in the way it returns you to the the immediate act right so a sense of of of, of systematic kind of immediacy I mean, and, and and to tie all this together, that's why I think we can argue the importance of doing something with the body, especially for somebody that has purely intellectual pursuits, right? Because if you can mold those two, right, and you develop both of those muscles, I'm sure you come back at both of them. You'll come at your scholarship in a whole new way. 
Right. Right? In endlessly new and flexible ways. Right, right. Or, or just, you know, or, or, your, or your experience of the world. Or it's your experience of the world. Yeah, totally. Um, so Milner says some stuff. Of, there's this quote by, uh, on the dream that I want to read and see what you think. Definitely, yeah. She says, um, Why is the dream primary? Then I thought the answer was that the first phase of experience is a dream rather than a perception simply because we are not born knowing the difference between thoughts and things. Not born knowing the difference between subjective and objective. It is a knowledge only slowly acquired. Thus the substance of experience is what we bring to what we see. Yep. And that's the romantic myth again, again captured. That's the romantic myth again. Yeah, this I... um, the substance of experience is what we bring to what we see, right? That, that everywhere yeah. we go, everything we look at is already suffused with our emotion, our emotional response to it. And that's why, um, you know, why etymology is so interesting, right? To remember that even words, especially words, right, which some people would just take as such, always have within all. Every word is a, is a creative act, right? You go back. And every word has a, is like a little poem where, where, where certain things were connected in a certain way, right? So, And that's why hip-hop is, is so great, right? And when, when you can get into it from the comparison of something like, you know, like, po- like uh, just the poetry that we, we studied in college, you really do see a connection and, 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 a, and a real sophistication in some of these guys, man, who have little to no education a lot of the times, right? Yeah, yeah. Like a real, a real use of language that's just so open and and in, and innovative and powerful, right? Yeah, right. Well, I mean, it's um, it's, I mean, the joy, the joy of of language comes comes before even 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 the meaning of the words, right? Yeah, right. I mean, so in in a sense, what Milner is kind of saying and everything is. is Everything around us, we're already in this kind of dance with. Right. Right? And I guess the more you engage, more importantly, like your body. Because what you're doing with drawing is you're kind of... It's, it's the body and the brain coalescing together and to, to do something. Right? There's a teamwork there. But you can also connect it to me playing tennis, right? Or going swimming. Yep, dancing, dan- dancing is one of the classic mem- metaphors because of, obviously, because 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 it involves embodiment or some yeah. kind of notion or idea. Yeah. Um, writing, right? The body of the the you know the letter having a body like quality informed by a spirit, right? Right. Um. But it's interesting that those things find themselves divorced. So you have to really be careful, because different different conversations are going to handle the terms differently. What do you mean? Talk about that a little more. Well, what what it is that's that you're trying to combine or re when you when you think of spirit and the body, and you think of neither is sufficient in and of itself. I mean, it just yeah. I mean, a person just has to think about um, about what they take each to mean, what you take spirit to mean, and what you take body to mean. 
um, and the terrors of each, the the trembling of each, right? Because there's something like a golem, right? Um, in, in Hebrew myth, right? The golem being the man of clay, which is pure body, right? Which has been given, which is a slave built up out of the out of the name of God, essentially, but made of clay, but not transfused with the spirit, right? So there's a sense of matter, of matter without spirit and spirit without matter, um, and, and the kind of different disasters associated with each, right? And humans kind of continually exist in this state of play between both of those, right? Yeah, definitely a, a sense of play between both of those. Or struggle. Yeah, and what they are exactly is very hard to pinpoint, right? But I think a spirit definitely is something that, that relates to belonging, meaning, um, fullness. Um, and here, you know, I mean, and, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe um, merger in a certain kind of way, definitely. Um, yeah, merger, I like that. Um, so this is here. Here are two. These are two different quotes from Thomas Traherne, right? He, this is a, a quick poem, um, and these are two different ways um, in which to describe uh, the states of the spirit, right? So Traherne, so um, cursed and devised proprieties with envy, avarice, and fraud. Those fiends that spoil even paradise flew from the splendor of mine eyes, and so did hedges, ditches, limits, bounds. I dreamt not aught of those, but wandered over all men's grounds and found repose. Proprieties themselves were mine, and hedges ornaments. Walls, boxes, coffers, and their rich contents or contents did not divide my joys, but all combine. Clothes, ribbons, jewels, laces, I esteemed my joys by others worn. For me, they all to wear them seemed when I was born. Not fettered by an iron fate with vain affections in my earthy state to anything that might seduce my sense or else bereave it of its use, I was as free as if there were no sin nor misery. Mm. But that sense of all ditches, all of ditches, all limits, all separations. I mean, she even here talks about um, the outline. You know, the first thing one learns to draw is the outline. And she talks about how arbitrary the outline is, you know? I mean, like the, when you talk about those first cave paintings, but nowhere in nature do you find outlines. You know, one thing senselessly merges into the next. Right. So separ- so we learn that. Somewhere along the line, we learn that separation, right? Um, and, I, and I actually had a kind of um, a breakdown or an epiphany when I was a kid. Where I was in my, where I was in my, like my kindergarten class, and I had a, a sort of mental collapse where I couldn't tell colors, I couldn't tell people apart, where all I could see were colors. Where I said, you know, I later had a screen named "People Are Shapes," because I had this this bizarre moment where I couldn't tell very briefly. Um, the I couldn't find the outline. Every, it was like drowning in a sea of, of shapes and colors. It's like how... Man, it's like looking at the world 
without culture, right? Like if you didn't, if we didn't have, we don't realize because our brains are doing it instantly, but there's this great suffusion between culture and language and experience when you, when you look at things and yeah, what is stopping, what is stopping experience from just melding together in one kind of fucking guacamole bowl of substance exactly who knows what's holding it together right well that's the terror when people talk about being a oneness with nature right right like you look at tree and 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 it's 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 actually makes you it's easy and that's reassuring to think tree but you never look at that and think extension of self yeah but even when people seek naively a oneness with nature the terror of what that might suggest um, often escapes the sort of uh, therapeutic sensibility of, 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 of what might be gained. Right. Because that, that that's desirable is obvious. Right. Right. Yeah. And I mean, if you if you keep thinking about it that way, then it, yeah, mosquitoes, like a, something like a mosquito would just be one example of just the terror of being what the natural world is like. Right, like even this, even something as, even the the tiniest thing is going to cause you a nuisance. There, Don't, can you imagine what the bigger things are going to do? Right, right. But there's that. That's that. Like that famous, um, the famous kind of uh, song of Ariel Shakespeare, right? Um, where he talks about merger with the sea, right? You know, full fathom five thy father lies of his bones, um, pearls are made, or no. Uh, Found five that father lies. What does he say? Um, Pull it up. No, I'm trying to remember. Hold on. (laughs) (laughs) No, go ahead. Search the. It's a good exercise for me. Yeah. Um, It doesn't matter. Let me see. I'll do a sweet aerial song. Can I read something from Milner? Yeah, please. I like this. She says, Of course there were also other aspects of the role of illusion to be considered. Not only its role as a bridge leading to objectivity. I like that. Right, right. But what, what, what's the next part? Um, not only the emotional disaster that could arise if the bridge were broken too soon. And the change right. from innocence to experience not accomplished in the child's own time. Wow. For instance, there were the advantages of disillusion to be considered. As when one right. wakes from a nightmare or finds that one's imaginary fears are imaginary. Right. right. Yeah, like that's, that's the part I like best, the advantages of disillusion. No, advantage, that's a very Chester, Chester tone, Chestertonian idea, right? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, it makes something rather easy, much more complicated, right? Because, right. I mean, that's like a very, I think even Wittgenstein says that somewhere, or disenchantment is, is itself enchantment, right? Or that disillusion has an advantage, right? Because there was something within the illusion that was threatening, and so that disillusion is itself an illusion which is, which is protecting you from right. from whatever that whatever was at risk in that state of illusion. Right. I mean I mean if we if you keep following that though then couldn't something like the idea or the concept of alienation also 
can be called pure individuality, right? Of, and, and there is something alienating about being an individual. Yeah, and that's always the question. That's the big question, right? Because that gets back to outlines, right? So that was something that William Blake was obsessed with, right? You know, William Blake thought the outline was the most crucial thing in art and was the moral good, right? Um, And why is that? Outline, in a sense, is spirit or essence? Outline is character, and character is strength, right? Um, Character is will. Character is the will to cohere of, of force, Right of power, right? Because the because you know you you get to the question, right? Um, what happens when you can no longer tell the tiger apart from the savanna, right? Um, or one man apart from another, right? You want these things to remain separate and distinct, right? Uh, for them each to retain their own individual power, right, and not to encroach upon each other, but then. That separateness, there's also a, a fear in that separateness, because even abstraction always involves a cutting of things, right? Right. So that that alienation become over, become, can become overwhelming, right? Right. When, where you have, like, these things in their own separate spheres, and, ha- and you know, that's the second Trahern, she says, I neither thought the sun, nor moon, nor stars, nor people mine, Though they did round about me shine, and therefore was I quite undone. Wow. You know, you know when you're in that state of fullness, that dreamlike state, everything has something to do with you, right? Um, pure subjectivity, almost, right? Yeah, pure subjectivity. It's that. It's a nightmare. It's a different kind of nightmare state where you walk through the world, and nothing has anything to do with you anymore, right? Where right. you have now, you're not alienated. You're a stranger in the world, right? You. That's what Wallace Stevens says. It is the human that is the alien that has no cousin in the moon. You know. Right, right, and that that's the great fear. I think that lies at um, or that maybe the great truth that lies. I think at um, at this whole UFO the UFO thing. I think the real scary truth is we are the most intelligent things in in the. In, in in this known right. universe, right? Because that places an enormous amount of responsibility on you, right? To what, to quote Milner when she says uh, that the substance of experience is what that what we bring to what we see. Right, exactly, and and it wouldn't solve the problem of intelligence to find a greater intelligence than ours, right? How beautiful it, would the world look if we did realize and come to the conclusion that we are the only ones out here? We are alone, and we right. We better get it together. That's the Gnostic myth, right? The Gnostic myth is discovering the a man in the abyss, right? The man, man as the maker, as the demiurge as the great creative power, right? That there's nothing when you escape to the, when you escape out one ring after another. And this is the problem with um with with the world as is, right? Because the world as is is a, is a disaster or a catastrophe creation. What that means is that you live in a world made by somebody else. Right. So everything you take for given is somebody else is is is, is some is some something they built yesterday. Right. Right. 
Uh, and unless then you, you take upon yourself that mantle of creator, um, and the poets obviously uh, occupy language in a certain way that allows them to return to where language is still creative. And where is that? Usually that has to do with etymology, right? Because you, you, you look at what a word has meant in various forms, and then you might add a myth to it. Because that's what, a, that, that's what, so rather than thinking of language as fossil poetry, right, um, uh, you, you go down deep into the living kind of core of a word. And you find how, you know, how different usages have lent different meanings to words over, over kind of a large uh, amount of time, right? Yeah. Yeah, and you see how they're, they're just as living and just as unique as, as people. Exactly, exactly. Should we end it there? Um, yeah, sure. Let me let me just give this. Let me just share this uh, this Shakespeare just uh just because I brought it up. Perfect. We're at, well, you know uh, we're at, we're at almost forty five minutes right now on the second recording. No, that's perfect. Oh yeah. yeah, that's why. Yeah, it's it's this is full. This is uh, full fathom five. That uh, full fathom five. Thy father lies. Of his bones are coral made. Those are pearls that were his eyes. Nothing of him that doth fade, but doth suffer a sea change into something rich and strange. Right? So that becomes transformed by, by Percy Shelley into the idea of transforming into music. But but Shakespeare's his version is, is much more terrifying, right? It's of being it's like really of a of a waterlogged body. That's what the because when one, one says you're one with everything, you could say that's well and good, but the terror of that yeah. is total dispersion. Right. Right. Yeah, because then you're nothing. You're nothing, right? And that's even the myth of many like creator gods, like uh, Hindu. There's the god Purusha, and uh, it's the same thing with Tiamat, right? The god that gets dismembered and becomes and becomes the world in, in this radical dismemberment, right? It's not, or that's the Dionysian story too, right? The, or Dionys, uh, what's called the sparagmos, which is tearing the body to limb, or tearing the limbs from the body in, in the state of Dionysian madness, right? Right. And maybe so let's that, even, go ahead. But that's what, you know, that's the terror of merger, right? Is dismemberment or dispersal or um, even a loss of what you might love, right? Because you wouldn't want. Um, um, and this is, you know, just we end, it can end on this, but this is what my big problem with the with the uh, with the radical with the radical trend in critical theory, right? Is that they're trying to always make everything more fluid, right, and more radical. But the problem with that is that you need the outline to hold sometimes, because you don't want to lose, for instance certain things in the in, in, in a current of absolute fluidity right you don't want certain things of your own certain precious things and memories of your father and such you hear that yeah. what was that <laughs> that was that was the, the, the lark at heaven's gate sings and phoebus gins that was a nightmare. <laughs> oh my god, that was terrifying. 
that's the that's ha- yeah that's a, that's a uh, an automated voice trying to read poetry with the two things that should never be brought together. Oh yeah, robots and poetry. Yeah, but anyway, that's just Ryan because I'm sure you you encountered that a lot in academia because everything starts with the self is boundless and it's like they've remembered one pole which is really crucial which is the boundless pole but the, but they've totally forgotten why we built why we spent so much effort building these boundaries right right because they hold us in place right because 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 they think it's like a discovery that 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 um it's a great discovery that those boundaries are arbitrary. Right, it's right. It's not a discovery. It, everyone, you're, 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 you're welcoming the storm. You know, yeah. you're, you're yeah. welcoming the loss of all distinction, which muddies everything. Everything gets muddied, which is what hell is, right? Hell is the loss of all distinction, right. which is like compared to shit, right? Right. I mean, that literally, that's the metaphor. Usually, that's why Blake calls calls hell balahula, right? Shapelessness, indistinction. That's what happens when everything becomes... Because that leads to uh, confusion, right? Absolute confusion, right? So that's why you need uh, the those moments of merger to be contained, right? Or something to hold on to when you when you do take take a trip into that place, right? When you do go to that place, you know, if you go far enough, you, you know, you could never you could never return, you know, because that. So these people think that they're going to destroy because what is really the, the the left believe they believe they're going to destroy all um, destructive boundaries and that that's going to be enough. Right. But what's obvious is that the new boundaries are going to have to be built. Right. right? And, and, they, and it's so obvious, but they can't think that far. They, right. they can't think they, they can't think farther than um, than somebody like um of Foucault because all of boundaries are violent and so and so they can't un- they cannot build right so they their, their only notion is that if, if the destructive boundaries that exist are gone then that that what's what remains will be a paradise right 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 and w- while some distinctions will be you know you know the what you need is finer distinctions right because distinctions allow meaning you know right. every distinction in language uh, I mean, if you were to teach students to write, right, uh, um, by removing all distinction, by not telling them why you would use why, you know, when when William, well, Walt Whitman says retrievements from the night, why didn't he say retrieval from the night? There must be some reason. Why isn't an intransitive a transitive? There must be some reason or little shades of difference between words or just a little feeling of difference. All those distinctions piled up are what allows particularity. So if you sweep all those away, there's not any chance of what's called individual. You know, just like you said, it's just a blob, you know? It's like the horror movie of the blob, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, that. that's the great hype of Foucault is to recognize the boundaries. And now what they're doing is because they're trying to tear down boundaries – and put up new boundaries. All they end up doing is mimic mimicking the old boundaries in, in an even worse way. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right. Um, well, that's the problem. Exactly. Right. Like I, I always, I, I thought that was so obvious, but I always, I asked uh, our students at CSUN that I said, I said you guys didn't like the canon. I said 
The canon contains tens of thousands of works from several cultures. I said this French school of theory, there are six people that it, that, that it contains. It, it contains a guy named Jacques Derrida, Michel Foucault, um, Lacan. Lacan. You know, there's about seven people that have replaced thousands and, and, and you're treating it as if as if as if as if it's this opportunity of new voices. Right, right, right yeah. Yeah, six white guys, right, too. Yeah, six white guys came along, and you're saying that this is the great redemption from... And, and, and what, what consi- the canon didn't even consist of purely white people. You know, the canon consisted of... I mean, that, that, that it could have been expanded was obvious. Yeah. But, the, but, but it, it, it was tens of thousands of years of history. The Mediterranean, when we talk about the, the, you know, the Judeo-Christian tradition... Those are people from the Mediterranean. They're not white people. They're not white people. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, everything that, that like Abyssina or that the great like Islamic scholars contribute to that, to that, to that, to that line of, of thought, you know, of all their, you know, the treatises on Aristotle. Those are not white people, you know? No, no the great Muslim scholars who pretty much discovered the Greeks for us. Exactly. Yeah, they're all acknowledged in the canon. It's right there. Exactly, and and then why does someone think that you're going to understand African mythology better through the lens of, of of Derrida? Yeah. Why would that be? Why would you know? Why if you really want this all this variety, you know, uh, you know, eventually you're going to have to go to the thing itself, um, or accept that you are in the culture that you're in. And try, and try to kind of expand expands that itself, right? But this idea of everything being a relational or a relational epistemology um, is emptier than a de- than dedication to a particular uh, uh, school of thought, right? For sure, because I think ultimately it's grounded in narcissism. Exactly. Well, you wouldn't. I mean, this is the hypocrisy, and you wouldn't ask. And it's like what I said about the Maori. You wouldn't ask the person steeped in Maori mythology to relativize, right? And you know, there's there's a there's a great critic of cameras name right now gets at this. Relativism itself is part of the Western tradition, right? You know, even the relative principle. You, you when you speak of it, you're speaking in a in a in its a distinct Western framework, right? What you know that you know which relativism has always been a part of right so yeah you can't wiggle your way out of it no matter how no you're right in the midst of it when you speak of relativism yeah all right man what should we talk about in the next episode i thought we could talk about uh the relationship between uh science and uh the humanities maybe right oh okay yeah and kind of maybe the also the the failures or the limits of, of the scientific uh frame of perspective right yeah, the fra- and why they've been so hard to co- to com- recombine in interesting ways, you know. Yeah, I've always thought that was interesting. How even on college campuses, they're literally they're they're separated physically. Like the buildings are separate. The buildings are separate, and um, yeah, and, and and obviously the humanities is somewhat suspect, right? I mean, when you tell somebody that you're going for a PhD in chemistry, there's an admiration. And there's almost you're almost a pariah. I really feel totally. when you tell people, especially these days, that you're that you're that you're involved in the humanities. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I think a lot of it is simply that it you know, goes back. I mean, it just goes back. I think people are just sick of themselves. I think I just human beings are sick of their own creation. Of humanity. Yeah. Of humanity. I really think that. That's what we need to do in the next episode and the next couple episodes too is make an argument for the humanities too, right? Exactly. Exactly. Um, and, and where that's strong and where it falls short, you know? Right. Perfect. Anyway, but yeah, so that was great. So yeah, so I'm gonna try to maybe even do one of these drawings, or you know, I got just you know to bring to bring to the podcast some uh, some different experiments, you know, just to try to live differently, you know, to really uh, extend myself into experiments a little bit rather than to uh, to kind of mindlessly move from from day to day. So I'm, I'm you know try to try to try to experience it in a in a in a new way, you know. Yeah, it's re- uh, yeah, man. Uh, me too, because I think it's, it's super important to activate all the different parts of us. And I think the older you get, to realize you realize there's all these different parts of you that you're so unaware of on a moment-to-moment basis. Exactly. And how they're exactly. all kind of working together. And you can even, I think, part of like maturing is realizing that you can get them to work for you, or they're going to work against you. But either way, they're working. Right? These great forces that make up uh, the human. Exactly. Um, so, can, can I close on a poem? Could just close on a poem offered in Milner? I would love that. So, this is Thomas Trahern. I just opened this to this page. By the way, this Thomas Trahern is absolutely, this, his poetry is absolutely gorgeous. You know what I, I was mean, thinking? Yeah. Though, I think one thing we should do is, or I have to do this on my end, is I have to ask you, get get the poems from you, and then I have to, I should publish them, like, written versions in the text of the of the podcasts. So I think it would be great for people, oh, right, yeah. to also read, be, have access to the readings. That would be, that would be great. Um, I think that's a great idea. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so go ahead. Uh, yeah, and eventually, you know, you know, because you know, we're just getting this going, but you know, eventually, I'm sure we can kind of think of structures that are appealing in a narrative way, uh, which might not just be kind of alluring to listeners, but might be fun in a creative sense to think of different uh, structures for how, uh, because we're both um, aspiring teachers, um, and and I love and I really that that word aspiring is crucial to me because. Um, because I take it really seriously as being a student is much more serious business to me than being a teacher. Me too. Right? Me too. So, you know, there's always that notion of the great teacher, you know, remaining a student or, or dedicated to the subject first. Right. You know, And I, always. I, oh, yes, right. So I, I'm always suspicious of wise men. Right. right? Unless I want to grant that to them because they said something that, I, that, 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 that I'm going to grant it to them. Oh, but I love but that. People, yeah. people who claim it for themselves are always rather suspect, right? Yeah, yeah, very suspect. Okay, hold on. Okay, so this is Trahern on language, kind of dreamlike logic of language. So he says, My non intelligence of human words, 10,000 pleasures unto me affords. Then did I dwell within a world of light distinct and separate from all men's sight where i did feel strange thoughts and such things see that were or seemed only revealed to me there i saw all the world enjoyed by one there i was in the world myself alone no ear but eyes themselves were all the hearers there and every stone and every star a tongue and every gale of wind a curious song but when I had gained a tongue, their power began to die. 
Wow. No ears, but only eyes were the only hearers there. Mm-hmm. Fuck. Thanks again for listening to another episode of the Garden School Podcast. Peace, and remember, cultivate your garden. Thank <laughs> you.